WBZ original. David Wade last year tried to, he committed election fraud. He, <laughs> he, he moved the ballot box. It's true. Yes. We have had uh, voter suppression. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, but worse than voter us. suppression was Just like goes to vote show. rigging. Mm. The lower the stakes, the higher the intensity. That's right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. We just saw snowflakes outside. Ooh. Welcome in to Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. We can handle it, John. Oh, we are damn. Alston's number one podcast. Yeah. We can handle some snowflakes. Uh, Studio BZ here, season four, episode six. I'm Paula Evans. I'm Liam Martin. And it does seem we just jumped right from maybe a month of beautiful fall weather in October. October was fantastic. Just right into winter. I can't stand it. I've lived here all my life. I've never gotten used to it. I don't ski. I don't skate. I, I just can't. You're almost at this snowbird phase of your life. Are you going to go Would down you do to it? Florida, do you think? When the time comes, when I'm no longer employed up here, uh, <laughs> I'm going to seriously consider it. Although I'm not a huge Florida fan, although I do like Miami Beach. Sure. Well, of we course, won't that's you. a party scene. We won't see you from New Year's Eve to opening day, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> All right. Uh, so coming up on this week's show... Who did we talk to? Liam? We talked to the organizers of the Boston Comedy Festival, Jim and Helen McHugh. Jim is a longtime stand-up in Boston. This is more than a hundred comedians performing all across Boston uh, now through Saturday. Through, so through the 16th, you can go see where whoever you want to see. They've got some big names. They're going to tell us who those people are. And we also talked with Jim and Helen McHugh about how being a stand-up has changed mm-hmm. over time. Some of the uh, some of the topics are no longer allowed to cover, or maybe want to shy away from. So we talked with them about that. And then, uh, as Alston's number one podcast, we do keep a close eye on what is happening in our beloved community. And uh, in that vein, uh, we'll be joined by Alston's newly elected District City Councilor, Liz Breeden, uh, elected to replace Mark Chomo, who's retiring as the District 9 City Councilor. We find out more about her, why she ran, and what she hopes to achieve on the council. And then, a loaded question Mm. in this era, what is... (laughs) journalism. Uh, There have been two recent incidents on the campus at Harvard and on the campus at Northwestern University, uh, which we will discuss concerning the teaching of student journalism and what it means. And this ties in with your remark about the snowflakes that are falling. There you go. Well, they are the organizers of the Boston Comedy Festival celebrating its 20th year. November 12th to the 16th, more than 75 comedians at eight venues across the city. Brother and sister, Jim and Helen McHugh, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your 20th. Thanks for having us. Yes. Fantastic. 20 years is big. 20 years. Helen was only three when we started. (laughs) That's true. In comedy festival years. Just you know who the power in this company is. Is there a gift for 20 years like first yeah, anniversary's get... paper what is 20 oh. years? Uh, mine is an ulcer i think that's <laughs> yeah. thank you very much yeah I'm, uh... it's beautiful he'll be here all week <laughs> sponsored by tums <laughs> so who are some of the big names you're looking forward to this oh, year oh man we got you want to speak a little i, I tend to take um who are our big names um caroline ray yes Ooh, she's great yes yeah. so fun 
and um, Robert you, Klein. Robert oh wow! Klein, yeah. He always amazing? used to be a Johnny Carson regular. Yeah. yeah. Was he really? Yes. You know, uh, I did. I did uh, my little podcast. The other day. <laughs> I got to interview Robert Klein. I was so excited because he started with Ed Sullivan all the way to he did Jimmy Fallon. Wow. The, I think the the one hundredth or ninety third something like that episode of the Tonight Show. He's wow. been on ninety three yeah. times. Wow. And he did Sullivan. And How old doing, is he now? He is, uh, I think he said he's in his 70s. And oh, so I'm he not going to narrow it down more than that because so I want him yeah. to like me when he gets here. And Eugene, <laughs> Eugene Merman as well. Oh, Eugene yes. Merman from Bob's Burgers. Comedian yeah. of the Year. And, and we, of the year. We, mm-hmm. we asked him to come on and he told us to go go screw. Why is that? We did it in a cartoon Why? voice. You can't really get mad at him. You can't really get too hostile with someone with a cartoon we got, voice. We got you guys in stuff. <laughs> <laughs> happy to have you. Um, how is the... You're, oh, that's you Robert, Robert Klein. Klein. Okay, yes, of course. Yes. You're showing me a picture of oh, him Oh, yeah. Wow. How, how is the stand-up scene in Boston right now? You've seen it mm-hmm. for decades now. How is it right now? You know, now, the thing about say? Boston is every couple of years, another class of world-class comedians come out mm-hmm. here. You know, going back, to, you know, it used to be Bobcat and Paula Poundstone and... Uh, Conan and I, I, I can that list goes on for starting with Jay Leno. You can go yeah, all the way back to Jay Leno. Then it goes to you know uh, uh, guys. Oh, I'm not going to blank, but it was like mm-hmm. uh, Brian Kelly writes for Conan and right. uh, and David Cross and Jonathan mm-hmm. Groff and, and Steve and, Sweeney, and Joe Rogan and and Billy Burr mm-hmm. and Mark Robert Marin. Kelly and Dana yeah. Dana Gould and Dana Cook yep. and Dana, Dana, Dana Cook, Cook yeah and. Uh, Louis C.K., like him or not, great, yeah. great comedian. Right. I mean, world class. Do you think that's still happening? Or yes, I know some of the clubs have closed. Do you, do you think it's as vibrant as it was? Well, it's changing, but it's we're you know this is still uh, a very uh, fertile ground for comedy. I mean, I would I would mm. point to Joe List and Joe Wong. Yeah, and uh, they're, they're taking over comedy now. You what know? is it about the Boston ecosystem? that creates a great comedian because well, there have been so many well there's i i have a theory i, I think <laughs> I, I, my theory is because you have all these colleges you have all these intellectuals mm-hmm. and then you got all these blue collar people mm-hmm. and they got all our sports fans and they don't suffer fools and if you don't bring the funny quick you are punished. It's called you are inside so and it's, it's really a, It's really a Pavlovian survival thing. <laughs> and as a comedian, when you get on stage, you look to your left and your right, and uh, you know if you got Lenny Clark on your left and you got mm. uh, you know uh, Stephen Wright on your right, you mm. you better bring yeah, better have some kind of fastball, or you're not going to last very long. They you know? were good. Yeah. Who are some young Boston comedians to watch right now, whether they're performing at the festival or not? You mean besides Jim McHugh? You mean other than Jim McHugh <laughs> and Helen McHugh? Of I mean, course. A lot of the focus is on him. Yeah. Yeah. I find. It's always, there's just, there's, it's bubbling up. This there's is the like family, this is the family fight we have. I always say, Helen, is there room for me on that poster? <laughs> She's like, you're on everything. I'm like, I should be. I think I in a question be. I said, who are some young bosses? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, you can't see this right now, but I have, I have a, a salt and pepper beard. Yes. And I'm working on a cruise ship and the guy says to me, I, I know what you want. What do you want for playing on music? I bet it's country music. I go, is that because I look like a Civil War reenactor? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very cool look. How is the cruise said, yes, ship gig, by plays, the way? Yeah. It's great. I mean, good? it's great. It's like three shows a night and people yeah, are Yeah, yeah, it and... really is. It's like more stage time you can get anywhere else, anywhere. But then do you see them by the pool? Like, oh, <laughs> you see them. You see them a lot. <laughs> and they a want to be your friends.
and yeah, you get you, you ever been on an elevator with a critic? It's a <laughs> eight or nine floor. It could be the slowest elevator in the world. You know? Do you change your your routine at all on a cruise? Do you get you know, rid of the part of the cruise ship I going actually, down? I was or? on two weeks ago. I was on a cruise ship on the on the elevator, and someone says to me, "It's two people, so it's an awkward conversation." And they go, "You're the comedian, right?" How come so many comedians commit suicide? Whoa! Oh, That's dear. the first question I go. I go. Uh, could be conversations like this on the elevator. Maybe, maybe, that could be it. maybe it's this. What's happening now? Right now. Oh, you know, geez. you expect me to have a tight five right here in the elevator? Have you met a lot of comedians that commit suicide? I think you might be the problem, sir. Oh my! Do you think gosh. it's um, tougher to be a stand-up? Now than it used to be. Jerry Seinfeld, mm. you, you and I have talked about this, Paula, has famously said he won't perform at college campuses. Yeah. I think Chris Rock said Colleges the same thing because out. people are too sensitive. Yes. Um, have you found that to yes. be true? Policing in your work? language. Yes, very much so. I think uh, um, I think comedians are at the point of the spear, and I think that uh, as far as freedom of speech, mm. and you know, uh, I had this conversation with Robert Klein on on uh, the Big Comedy Festival podcast. <laughs> Yes, I don't mind mentioning. But anyway, we talked about this. Like, you know, uh, um, we had Kitty Bruce out, Lenny Bruce, and George Carlin, and Richard Pryor. And these guys fought so that anyone had the right to to express themselves using the full breadth of our language. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And from that same area, these same areas, people are now saying... I have the right to to stop you from speaking, mm. and 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 in many cases because comedy is developed in front of a live audience, you can't write it at home. You have to try it several times, hundreds of times, right. to figure out what's funny about something. And now someone can go in with an iPhone and record a joke you do the very first time, and you stumble with it, or it's maybe you're pu- trying to push the edge. You have an idea that's not fully fully developed, and then put it out on the internet, and you could be. Really publicly damaged. You can be canceled. Exactly. Canceled, right? Canceled. Right, right, uh, it's interesting because I heard Jay Leno on the Mark Marin podcast. Yes. I don't know if you heard that episode, but he was talking yes. about performing in Boston in the early 70s. It must have been 73 or 74. Right. And he was saying people think the atmosphere is so tense right now and politics is so ugly. He said <laughs> he remembered a show at the Playboy Club in the Combat Zone in 1973 ish. Freddie Prinz got up, made a joke about Nick. And someone shot a gun at him. Yep. The bullet hole wow. was in the wall behind Freddie Prince <laughs> next to his head. Yeah. So there's been tension. Before. I've wished for yeah. that bullet several but times. But this guy. <laughs> I'm say he's going to. If someone would only shoot me in the head right now and make this pain stop. CK got his start here. Let's talk about him for a moment. Uh, he's largely been off the scene right. mm-hmm. since everything that happened with him, admitting to uh, some incidents of sexual misconduct. Right. He did attempt that comeback last year at the New York Comedy right. Store. Uh, the club owner was criticized for yep. allowing him to play there. How would you handle that? As the organizers of the festival, Louis C.K. said, I'm ready. I, I want to make a comeback. I've said my apologies. May I come back? That's a good question. Maybe you feel differently about it. No, I think the thing with if you decide you're going to go with Louis C.K. and we haven't, but if we, I think you have to have a venue where you say very clearly yeah. to the public, "This is who it is. Yeah. This is what I he think talks the about." Of him and if you come show. in and you are going to buy tickets, know that this is what you're paying for, and this is what you're accepting, and this is what you're mm-hmm. okay with. Because I think the difference is with what the seller did, and I, I'd like to work the seller if you're listening. So <laughs> I love your club. Um, <laughs> The comedy seller, that's the Yeah, that's a great club. But I think, you know, he kind of was one of the builders of that club. And I yes. think they kind of 
decided, well, he could just walk in and he walk out. He just showed up one yeah. night. And that's a little different. I think that's a little different. I think, uh, you know, they used to, the, the most hated comedian, at, most loved the most hated comedian at one point was Andrew Dice Clay. Mm. And, uh, you know, not uh, not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And uh, he had his following, and they rented rooms, and they made money. But I think if you were, uh, you know, on a date with your wife, and you, they just walked him in through the back door, that's a different thing mm. than to making a conscious so decision. So you need to know home. what you're you buying tickets to Yeah, I think, I think part of the reason why people were upset that night was because they didn't know that they were signing up to see him. Mm. So, but but in, do you think mm. that he deserves to come back? There's this debate among everyone, but including comics, about whether or not Louis should come back or if what he did was unforgivable. And I'm wondering, as comics, I think me and Helen might disagree on that one. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't think what he did is a, it should be a death penalty, you know. But I think I don't. I don't honestly know what the mm. answer is. I don't know mm. what he should do. I know that everybody makes horrible mistakes and does you know horrible judgment things, and he did. I mean, you know, but. I think the audience is going to decide whether mm-hmm. he has a career or not. I don't think it's up for. Yeah. I think, uh, to be honest, I think mo- what's, if he's selling tickets and making money, I think clubs are going to book him again. Right. And, and at some point, in theaters, well, uh, an example closer to me and Helen is, is Artie Lang, and I don't think I'm talking out of school because we interviewed him. He, he's, yep. he's now yeah. uh, become sober 10 months ago, and he had a very tough time, and he made a lot of bad decisions because of his addictions. And he's trying to make a comeback now. We have seen some horrible comments on our social media. Artie Lang is performing. About our, Artie Lang is performing uh, on, Wednesday. on Wednesday at the Larkham Theater. And his tickets are selling very well. And I mean, is it for us to decide that he had, a, you know, a her- what is it, a heroin and cocaine and yeah. alcohol and so gambling should. and every other addiction? And now he's cleaned himself up. He's lost seventy pounds. He's, you know, like, look, comedians are not perfect people. You know, I mean, a lot of what makes us funny is we've mm. had a lot of pain in our lives mm. and uh and i don't know i don't know what louis pain was but i know it, a lot of it comes from there the need mm. to have people like you and accept right. you and so I, as a comedian I, my heart mm. goes out to all these folks that, it is it's just an interesting debate about yeah. when we talk about free speech and what's right. going on in terms right. of safe space culture mm. you know is comedy in a different category when you buy tickets and you go in to watch someone who's there to make people laugh what makes one person laugh is very different from what the person in the next mm. seat thinks well we see that with the different shows that we book we get vastly different crowds based on who it is you know like the Artie Lane crowd is going to be probably very different than the Robert Klein. Or Caroline Ray. Or Caroline Ray. Or Or Ray. We have a very specific (laughs) group of people that follow Emo Phillips. Emo Uh, Phillips. Emo Phillips is literally probably the best best joke writer in America right now. Mm. And he's got a very uh, emo, he calls them emophiliacs. (laughs) And he's very, very creative and very uh, odd and wonderful person. And, when and, his, and his crowd is very creative and odd and wonderful people. Yeah. Is that yeah. the best way to say yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I last year we uh, had three women mm-hmm. comics from yeah. the Boston Comedy Festival on. They all three were finalists. I think it was the Hilarious. first time that that had happened, and they were all fantastic. If uh, I can plug, we're having the women of the Boston Comedy <laughs> Festival okay. at the Hilton on Friday, November fifteenth. If you go Great. to Boston, yes. so the women that were on your show are going to be performing mm-hmm. at our festival. For the most part, we add uh, Joe List's wife, who is hysterical, and she's been Sarah on Sarah Talamash. Say it, 
Sarah Talamon. Sarah is going to be headlining. She's been on uh, two um, late night shows. I think Conan and, and Colbert. And Colbert. They're fantastic. So I mean, a really crazy, funny, funny, funny show. Well, it's an incredible rundown. Great. Where can people go to learn about the festival? Yeah, um, BostonComedyFest.com. Mm. And we've got Eugene Merman, Caroline Ray, all the ones we've listed. We have over a hundred comedians coming. More than hundred. So there's going to be one that you love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's. It sounds cliche, but I mean, wh- whatever brand of music. If you like, uh, if you're a Civil War reenactor, there's me. <laughs> okay. If you like uh, eclectic, wonderful, beautiful jokes, there's Emo Phillips. If there's, yeah. if you're, uh, I, uh, uh, Caroline Ray is a wonderful. Beautiful, talented comedian, and she give it the Larkham. And and Artie is a rough and tumble. I'm opening for Artie on Wednesday. I'm mm-hmm. thrilled about that. That's fantastic. Because uh, right he he actually is quite popular with the Civil War reenactment. <laughs> <laughs> so There's it was a good match. Oh, it's so great. World and War One guys don't like it. The Civil War guys are crazy about it. <laughs> uh, but it's great. It's been 20 years of the Boston Comedy years. Festival. Yeah, congratulations, Jane thank Helen you. McHugh. Thank you so yeah. much for coming. Thank you in. so we much. Appreciate it. Studio BZ. Well, on Election Day earlier this month, uh, some history was made for the Boston City Council. In January, we'll have the first majority female city council, Hmm. uh, uh, more uh, uh, racial and ethnic diversity than ever before. And a part of that mosaic is the newly elected councillor representing Alston Brighton, District 9, City Councillor Liz Breeden. I sat down with her the other day here at the beautiful Studio BZ podcast studio. Uh, and uh, talked with Liz, who's an Irish immigrant, has been here since the mid-90s, about what really was an upset victory, and we started off by talking about why even run in the first place. Mm. And may I just say, did you ask her if she can get us some more food places, some more food options? For me. This would improve Liam's quality of life. Yeah, that would improve my quality of life. Well, you're right to remind me that everything that goes on here at Studio BZ is all about you, Liam. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, actually, we did talk about development and mm-hmm. all of the new development that's about to start popping. There is a ton yeah. going all on. joking aside, it's a uh, huge consideration right And now. so I, I think you'll find it interesting what she has to say. And she is certainly uh, a, a counselor-elect on a mission. All of all the media. media. All of all the media. All the media. Why did you decide to run? Um, well, I've been an activist in the neighbourhood for 20 years. Mm. Um, and then more recently, the housing issue is really pressing because we see so many people, being, uh, young families, being displaced. And I really felt that, our, um, that we needed to shake it up and I needed to use the campaign as a way to raise those issues and draw attention to it at, a, at the higher level. And we won. We won the campaign. So here we are. Um, you sound surprised. No, I, I, I always felt that we had a good chance, but it was, it was a long, hard, hard-fought campaign. And what our message did resonate because it was housing improvements in, in our transportation system, our education system, and also whole issues around climate change and uh, resilience in our community to prepare for climate change. So. Uh, people that those those issues resonated with people so and you did the work we did the work yeah. that always counts yes you don't get there without the work yeah uh you finish before we start talking about the future mm-hmm. i do want to talk a little bit about the election mm-hmm. you finished second in the preliminary to craig cashman yes 
uh, and uh, by a narrow margin. Mm -hmm. You blew his doors off in the final. Mm -hmm. How'd you do it? Well, we had a turnout of almost 5,000 in the, in, the in the preliminary round, and we had seven candidates. And it was up to me to try and secure the votes of the younger population. But I also wanted to increase the turnout uh, and reach out to people who hadn't participated in the municipal preliminary round. And we increased turnout by 1,600 votes in the second round. So as you look forward to joining the council in January... Um, what's the the one thing you want to be most known for at the end of your first term? I think to be uh, known as an accessible, uh, effective advocate for the neighbourhood um, is my primary goal. And there are several big issues that we need to address. The housing issue is huge. I don't think it's an overstatement to say we have a housing crisis in, in Boston. We have a housing crisis in Alston Brighton. We're building a lot of housing that's not affordable for yeah, people. Yeah, how is that manifesting itself in Alston Brighton? Well, I just looked at numbers this morning, actually, that this over 5,000 new units been built are in the pipeline, and only uh, 284 or 5.5% 5, 5 of it is, 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 in, is classified as inclusionary development. And just so people understand, what does that mean? What's an inclusionary rent? Inclusionary rent is rents that are... Um, Within a, a big project, 13% of the, of the units are supposed to be set aside for uh, more affordable units. Right. Um, but in Alston Brighton, uh, that number, were, uh, those numbers sort of suggest that we're not even close to the 13%. Um, and it makes it, and then within that, the price tag of the units that are being built in Alston Brighton is. Is, is pretty high compared to other neighbourhoods in the city. And that's not even to start to look at, at folks on low income who, you know, I, I have numbers from the, our local Alston Brighton Community Development Corporation and they have a wait list of 17,000 people for housing. If nothing changes, what will Alston Brighton look like in 10 years? I'm very concerned that we'll have a huge amount of, of luxury housing that no, no one can afford. And really, in, in terms of a fluctuating economy, I really wonder about the wisdom of building so much luxury housing. We should be building more recession-proof housing that's mixed income, that has a, has a mixed income profile that different people of different uh, earning capacity would have access to housing. How is that recession-proof? Just explain um, that term. Well, if you have a huge amount of luxury housing that nobody can afford, then it's going yeah. to be laying vacant when there's a recession. Right. And everybody's going to go back and live with their mom and their, <laughs> in their, in their spare, uh, spare room or whatever. But we need to really focus on trying to have uh, more housing that's affordable for a broader range of people in the neighbourhood. Well, to hear Mayor Walsh tell it, the city's doing everything they can to prod developers to meet more ambitious affordable housing goals to help people find housing. Uh, obviously, if you thought the city was doing everything it could, you, you might not have run. So what more will you be pushing the Walsh administration and others to do? You know, it's really, a, it's not just a city. It's a, it's a big problem in the city, but it's a regional issue. Right. Um, and I think the, the governor's approach to try and get some of our suburban neighbours to try and build more affordable housing is, is really necessary. Boston can't just carry the can and, and, and house everyone. Uh, we need to really work with it and to develop more housing regionally. 
uh, and that also ties into you know improving our mass transit so people aren't spending two hours a day travelling back and forth to jobs in the city. Um, so it's a complex problem that we need to try and uh, come up with some really, really good solutions. Which candidate for president is speaking to that issue most impressively in your view? I think Elizabeth Warren's uh, um, platform on housing is, is, is certainly starting to tackle the issues and talk about them in a very serious way. Uh, there's no easy answer, but I think housing is uh, a fundamental driver of our, of our economy. And in this neighbor, in, in the city of Boston, if we get to the stage where housing is so import- so unaffordable and our transit system uh, is unreliable, that people will just say, I'm out of here, they'll go somewhere else, um, you know, where they can get more affordable. And, you know, they've got skills that, that are marketable in other parts of the country. They can go and, and uh, get jobs in a city that housing's less expensive and that they've got decent public transit. Just today, the day we're taping this interview, it was reported that uh, Harvard has narrowed down to three developers uh, the uh, development plan for that tract of land that they own along Western Ave, the huge areas that have been sitting cleared but vacant for so long. Between that and the rail yards project, uh, these are going to bring huge, huge changes to the makeup and the tax base of of Alston Brighton. First, with regard to the Western Ave projects, are you have you had a chance to look over these three finalists? Are you content with what you're hearing in terms of community benefit and proper fit, or not? I haven't had a, a chance to really study them in any detail. Uh, my concern is that we need to have, ensure a really robust. Uh, public uh, comment process and a public uh, involved the neighbourhood. Um, I know the Harvard Task Force has been meeting for for decades now. Uh, it's a long-term project. Harvard has a long-term plan. What's your view of the community relationship with Harvard as you head into office? Um, I think Harvard um, has worked hard to try and uh, meet us uh, halfway. Uh, they've invested in the ed portal, um, you know. But at the end of the day, Harvard is a huge non-profit, the second largest in the world after the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, we would like to see a more proactive uh, relationship with Harvard uh, to to think about community development in a in a very creative way to try and uh, in just to, to build strength in that relationship even for, further. What would a more proactive relationship look like? How would it be different from what goes on now? Well, one, one issue that's of great concern is the whole issue around pilot payments, payment in lieu of taxes. Yeah. And um, when you look at the details of, of that agreement, it's, it's a voluntary agreement with the city that they would pay uh, 25% of, the, of what their real estate would be, would be assessed at, would be, would be paid. Uh, and of that, some of it would be payment in kind. So projects, pro- programs such as the, the Ed Portal would right. be counted as payment in kind. But then the cash element is a 12.5% uh, would, uh, would be in cash that would go into city, to pay for city services. And, but that's not happening. They don't. They've never met those. I never targets. met those. Um, and some of our institutions locally do better than others. Like BC pays ten percent of what their cash uh, allowance would, their allotment would be. Um, Harvard, um, 
pays a little more, and and BC pays or BU pays a little more yeah. again. So it's it's really a bone of contention that we have these huge institutions in our neighbourhood who uh, have changed our neighbourhood dramatically over decades, over generations, um, but that the community are having to sort of plead to have them pay their fair share of payment in lieu of taxes. Because what they don't pay is the taxpayers of Boston have to pick up and we have to pay the, we have to pay, pay the tab. One last thing. Uh, there was a lot of talk after Election Day earlier in November that about the historic nature of the council elections. Uh, pre- majority female council for the first time ever, more racial and ethnic diversity than ever before. Um, and you're part of that, uh, of that new diversity. When we look up in four years from now, say, how will we have seen that reflected in the way the council operates? I mean, I get it that it's beneficial in a diverse city that's majority non-white to have a police force, an elected body like the council that sort of looks like the city, that, that it's not all, you know, white males. That, that makes perfect sense. But beyond that, what will have happened over the next four years that, in, in your vision, will really reflect this new diversity? What will change? I hope in four years' time we can look back and say that the, the div- more diverse city council has addressed issues of inequity in our, in our city. Um, we have ine- inequity in our, in our housing. We have inequity in our uh, transit system. We have inequities in our education system. So I would like to fit... I would hope that in four years' time that we will have, we will have begun to tackle some of those issues um, and, and, and brought some resolution uh, to make, to, to make um, our city a welcoming, inclusive and economically diverse city that has a place for everyone. Uh, that's what I think about when I think about Alston Brighton is that we need to ensure that it's an equitable, inclusive and uh, economically diverse community and that it's not just for people who've got a lot of money, who can earn a lot of money and who can displace other people who learn less. Liz Breeden is Alston Brighton's new district councillor-elect. Councillor-elect Breeden, thanks for joining us here on Studio BC. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Boston Hill, the glittering jewel city of the world. Let's talk about two controversies going on right now, two different college campuses, Northwestern University and right in our backyard, a few miles from us here in uh, the Alston Studios at Harvard, over two student newspapers that have been criticized by protesters of ICE for taking photos of the students and then making attempts to identify them so that they could then contact them to get quotes from them. And this is in the Washington Post. There's an article about what happened at Northwestern, the Harvard Crimson. You can go to see their coverage of what happened there. Two different campuses, two different ICE protests, and both photos were taken of the protesters, and the protesters are upset that they were photographed and that attempts were made to identify them. Two different responses, though. Two different responses. At at Harvard, the Crimson editors politely met with the disgruntled students, Mm -hmm. uh, heard out their concerns, and then basically told them to get lost because they were saying it was wrong of you to contact ICE 
after you covered a rally calling for the abolition of ICE to ask for their comment. Right. They didn't contact, I should say, the Harvard Crimson, just to lay out the facts of this case. Yes. There was a protest on the campus against ICE. Public protest. A public mm-hmm. protest. The Harvard Crimson has a staff photographer there. They take photos. And some of the protesters were upset that the Harvard Crimson, after attending the protest and talking to some of these people about what their concerns about ICE were, then contacted ICE for a comment. Because it, accusations have been made against ICE for targeting protesters. Right. And activists. the one line in this Harvard Crimson story is ICE did not respond right. to a request for comment. And these protesters were very forward, upset. They didn't that, forward photos or read back quotes, named quotes from protesters. No. They just called them up. There's a protest calling for your abolition. What do you, what what do you com- say to comment? And when these protesters then contacted the Crimson and said, right. we want you to not contact ICE, the Crimson basically said, well, you said, John, which yeah. is, well, this is this journalism is how 101. Works. Sorry, go away. And this is how we do things. We're always going to do things. And since then, the Harvard student government, whatever that is, voted to support this student group. I don't, they're not explicitly calling for, this, for the boycott of the Crimson the way the, uh, the uh, pro-immigration group was, but they voted uh, a, a resolution of we support We should say the them. president of Harvard is supporting the Harvard Crimson. Yes, of course. The they staff. did exactly yeah. what they're supposed to now, do, which is to reach out for comment from both sides. Did right. they identify any of these students against their will? No, and even if they did... It was accurate. It's... They a were in public a public place. Protest, right. yeah. and a public street. Again, journalism 101. Once you're okay. in a public place, mm-hmm. you're protesting, which by nature is calling attention to an issue that you're protesting, you are going to okay. be identified. That's so, the very nature right. of it. So here's my, my short-term take on this. Okay. There's a broader issue here, which I hope we'll get to in a minute. And that is that these fine young men and women at these institutions are clueless, not just about how journalism works. And in that, as we can discuss in a minute, they have plenty of company. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand how the press, how journalism works. Mm -hmm. But they're also clueless about what a public space is Mm -hmm. and the implications of doing something in a public space. I think it ties in with growing up in a social media world how many cases have there been of younger people and some older people too who've blown up their jobs, blown up their personal mm-hmm. lives, blown up their careers because they don't understand that your Facebook page and your Twitter feed and your Instagram can be accessed can be accessed by anyone like a potential employer and mm-hmm. so forth. Right. And I, I, I find that amazing and appalling and troublesome. I think what's interesting, we all three are journalists, have been for a long time, studied journalism. I went to both Northwestern and Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we all agree that this is bordering on the ridiculous, right? To say, I'm at a public protest. How dare you take my photo? How dare you try to identify me so that you can then get a comment from me? They're not identified. The reporter never tried to identify the student and then say to ICE, hey, this person might be undocumented. That would be, of course journalistic malpractice right. but this is standard journalism practice just I calling see a protest, for comment i take pictures i ask you why you're there why you were protesting ice and i then contact ice and say they're protesting you what do you think about right. that 
But because I think we all three feel the same way about this, I, I just want to test this one potential comeback, which is that some of the students who were protesting at these events, we understand now, are undocumented mm -hmm. and are rightfully worried about being outed and ICE then taking action. And we live in this age right now where ICE, of course, has really kicked up its enforcement. It has, we know, in past cases, gone after some activists. What about that? What about that argument that this, you need to use extra. So are journalists in charge of trying to police those considerations no, when writing a not. story? Yeah, it's, it's a problem for these kids. They have my utmost sympathy. It's not our problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be always aware of the imperative to not gratuitously hurt anyone. Sure. Quick story. Over 30 years ago, I'm sitting at my desk at the Tab newspapers out in Newton, chain of local weeklies, and I get a call from a furious woman who says that, how dare we print that week's police blotter, mm. which included the information about the arrest of her adult son for boosting a grocery store. How dare we print his name? Mm. People will see that. Uh, our family will be embarrassed. His life will be ruined. How dare you? I said, ma'am, this is public information. Uh, I'm sorry about whatever distress in its publication might cause you, but we publish this police blotter every week. And... And, you know, she kept pressing mm -hmm. and she was very vituperative. Course, so yeah. I got a little angry and I said, ma'am, you know what? If he didn't want his name in the police blotter, he should have tried harder to avoid mm. robbing the grocery store. Right. Right. Unfortunately. And I still feel the same way. It Journalism, the truth is not pretty. It's not nice. Mm. It's not friendly and protective. Sometimes it means people are embarrassed or humiliated. And... You know, that's the way it is. And if you understand that and then decide you're not willing to put up with that as the cost of a free press, well, then we have a whole nother problem. Let me ask this journalism ethics class here that we're having in Studio BZ right now. Let's say this didn't happen in this case, but let's say you're taking a picture of this protest. You're a staff photographer for the Crimson or this, uh, what is it called? The uh, Daily Northwestern. And you then go through the effort to identify someone that's in the picture, and it turns out that person is undocumented. You call them, they say, I was at the protest. Yes, I, I don't think that Jeff Sessions should have been speaking at our campus because he puts me in danger, but will you please not print my name because I am undocumented and this could lead to me being arrested. Then you don't what, print it. You yeah. don't print it. And what, yeah. what do you because it's not that? necessary, not no. germane to the story and absolutely necessary. If you have a source who asks you for a consideration, that is the journalist's Discretion. decision to weigh. Right, I agree. I, yes. I wouldn't print totally it in that agree. case because, again, you, you, you're always weighing what's the value of the information mm -hmm. that I'm gathering versus the potential damage right. done to a person For instance, as a result of it. I have had stories where I have um, spoken with or identified with their permission a child at a school, but who then uh, the parent or the child through the school will contact and say there is another parent elsewhere 
who we would prefer they not know where that child is. Right, right. bingo. There no, is no reason that I no put hesitation. that child in the, spe- in the story. I once did a story about some perk that was being abused by a public agency. It was a... Uh, they were taking home cars that they shouldn't have been taking home, something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. It wasn't murder or anything, but uh, they they were uh, ripping off the public at a low level. And there were dozens of names of employees at this agency who had participated. And we had gotten the list through a Freedom of Information Act request. And in the story, we have the camera pan down the list of names. And as uh, the story was getting ready to air, I got a call from the PR guy for this agency who said, look, he says, one of the people on that list uh, just passed away from a fatal heart attack oh, last wow. night. Oh and the grieving widow called me up begging me to ask you if you could keep his name <sighs> off TV. Mm. Discussed it with my bosses and we all immediately agreed. The story was fine mm-hmm. without showing his name. Right. Mm-hmm. And we did not show his name. So, so, you know, yes, there's, you should be given consideration. There should be leeway, but what right. these kids want is the insinuation ridiculous. here was that it shouldn't have been undertaken at all right. with anyone, yeah, right, right. right? Right. And the other aspect of this that I think it's important to talk about: putting aside the undocumented consideration, right? Because that's only going to pertain to a certain number of people at the protesters, but not the vast majority. I just thought it was fascinating that in the Daily Northwesterns piece writing back about uh, how students had voiced concerns about this. One of the quotes was, and this is at a school for journalism, Yeah, mm-hmm. nothing is more important than ensuring that our fellow students feel safe. Yeah. And I do think that this, you know, you hear all kinds of jokes, you know, now about the snowflakes and what have you. But I actually think there was a book that came out this year that really does an important job of analyzing this phenomenon on college campuses. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas right. Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Mm-hmm. It's written by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. And I just want to read... to point out, too, that those authors, they I are, believe, are Democrats. They are Democrats. They both point out they are center left, one more to the left than the other. Yeah. They, they come right out to tell you that right. so that you understand where they're coming from. But they talk in this very well-researched, well-laid-out book about what's happened on college campuses, not dismissing it with jokes or referring to the millennials as snowflakes, right. but they talk about the whole concept of safetyism mm-hmm. and yeah. how it is affecting these kids. And just two quick things that I... Um, pulled out because I just thought it was really fascinating. They say iGen's arrival at college coincides exactly with the arrival and intensification of the culture of safetyism from 2013 to 2017. Members of iGen may be especially attracted to the overprotection offered by the culture of safetyism on many campuses because of students' higher levels of anxiety and depression. Mm. Both depression and anxiety cause changes in cognition, including a tendency to see the world as more dangerous and hostile than it really is, Mm -hmm. which is a sad statement on how kids feel now. But the larger overarching theme of the book, oh, iGen would be uh, kids who are in college now, right? Children born, I believe millennials grew up until 2001 or so, 
Uh, and so this is kids who would be college Gen age. Y? Is this people, like Gen Y? People who were born after 2000. Yeah. Right? But um, the other statement here, which, which really hit me, having seen our college admission scandal, recently, yeah. and ha- the expense of a college tuition, which has become astronomical, has turned students into consumers. Yeah. That on college campuses, the customer's always right. They feel they call the shots. Yeah. So the president, a classics professor from the University of Maryland, Eric Adler, is quoted in the book saying, even at public universities, 18-year-olds are purchasing what is essentially a luxury product. Is it any wonder they feel entitled to control the experience? Students accustomed to authoring every facet of their college experience now want their institutions to mirror their views. If the customers can determine the curriculum and select all their desired amenities, it stands to reason they should also determine which speakers ought to be invited to campus, what opinions can be articulated in their midst. For today's students, one might say, speakers are amenities. I guess if you're so, paying $60,000 right, a year, you might feel some right. license. The God. one thing I would note in response to that quote saying, nothing is more important than the, yeah. that they feel safe, safe, is that from a journalism perspective, nothing can be more important than the truth. Exactly. It's not that you're making someone feel safe or telling someone what they want to hear. In fact, that is the opposite right. mm-hmm. of the goal. It is to make sure whatever it is, it is the mm. truth. Also, let's throw journalists under the bus at this point as well, that there's a reason 100 years ago we were referred to as the ink-stained wretches, right? Because my grandparents, who wrote for the Boston Post, scurried around Boston, calling sources, finding out secrets, writing things in the paper, because there were eight daily newspapers competing for information. Well, as soon as... TV journalists in particular and people at the New York Times and Washington Post became celebrities themselves. Mm. Yeah. I think that the whole notion of what journalists do and who they are has changed right. in the minds of people that they are not working class, they are from the elite, right. that no. they are not speaking to the concerns of everyday people. Well, here's a study, a recent study by the Media Insight Project, an initiative of the American Press Institute, Half of the public doesn't know what an op-ed is. More than four in ten do not know what the term attribution means. Mm. Mm. Close to three in ten do not know the difference between an editorial and a news Wow, three in ten. And, you know, Twitter isn't helping with the proliferation, I think this is a big mistake, of journalists, straight journalists, White House reporters, congressional reporters, whose work in their publications is straightforward, mm-hmm. but then they go on Twitter and get all snarky yes. about the oh, subject. Right. Snark their opinion. At a, the uh, snark level opinion. is at a maximum. It's right. okay um, for someone like me whose title is snarkologist. <laughs> right. But not for... I can't tell exactly. you the number of times, I'm sure you have all experienced this, on Twitter, when you'll write... Let's say it's a story about Elizabeth Warren and her campaign against Joe Biden. Yeah. You'll say, Biden campaign aide says Elizabeth Warren is antagonistic or whatever. And people will write to you and go, how dare you say that about mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. And you go, no, 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 no. I said that Joe Biden's campaign aide right. said that it's not. That's called attribution. Right. That's my job is to tell you what each person in the race is saying at a given moment. Anyway, that, that drives me crazy. But I will go back to this. Speaking of the media elite and how we're all snarky and all that, John earlier used the word vituperative. 
Uh, so that's snark level 100. No, it is not. <laughs> it's a perfectly good word. John for has an advanced bitter, vocabulary. It's a $5 word. It's for but bi- bitter and, right. and abusive. That and the yeah. plain glass eyeglasses are the way I project gravitas. <laughs> and the mustache. Keep that in mind. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's all fake. It's all fake. They so, all come off together. Here's the, here's come the, together here's to the question. Here's the question. What do we do at the end of the day? Liam is actually a graduate of both Harvard and Northwestern. Oh, yeah. You've been to these institutions. What are we to do with this change in philosophy on college campuses where <sighs> students are demanding um, certain treatment and don't act like it's the student-professor relationship anymore and they're going to call the shots? And You know, I, I don't know that it's time to panic. These examples are egregious. Mm. Another good word. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, my my boys, two boys are now in their 30s, but they went, one, my older son went to the University of Chicago, mm. which is a place that does not accommodate no. any of these newfangled. That's where the president politi- said, uh, hey, kids, you will not be calling the shots about which keep speakers come to campus. Right. Just and you letting will, you know. And you will not, and you will treat those speakers with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the younger one went to Wesleyan, which is a university heavily populated by first-generation Americans, or rather, first members of their family who attend college. And these tend to be kids who are not there to, pardon the expression, fart around with a bunch of snowflakes. They're there to learn, grow, experience, and make every penny of what their poor parents are shelling out work for them. Mm -hmm. So I would question whether these... Uh, regrettable incidents represent the majority right. of undergraduates. Well, I hope not. And I think it's up to the administrations of the universities to mm-hmm. push back and not necessarily right. give in to all of these demands. I think obviously you want to take into account how a student is feeling about a given but, thing, but not giving in. I right. think the president of Harvard yes. has responded correctly to this, which yeah. is mm-hmm. no, no, no. The Crimson yeah. did what it's supposed to do as a journalistic organization, and we stand by them. One of the suggestions of this, the authors of this book about the coddling of the American mind suggests service or work before college, which I think is an mm. excellent idea. Oh, and a lot of high schools require that these days. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the administrators, Liam. Don't put too much stock in, uh, in them cleaning up the mess. A lot of them are very concerned with safety, too, the mm. safety of their fat, cushy sinecures yes. that they yes. have. As of soon course. as the universities began growing all those vice presidents. Yeah. And provosts. There are all kinds provosts. of layers of bureaucracy to be protected. Okay, so, wow. This was a really interesting podcast from comedy mm. to such serious topics. Mm. Uh, Studio BZ, of course, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe and share. We ask you to review us. It's at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Eben. I'm at Keller at Large. Keep it polite, please. And I am at Liam WBZ. And I just want to appreciate John's range because he went from vituperative and then a few minutes later to fart. (laughs) That's true. I think that that's, you know, just demonstrates. A man uh, of the people. Yeah, exactly. There are times when there's nothing more vituperative than a fart. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, we'll We'll be be seeing you. My mother would say, don't be crass. (laughs) That would be right on the cutting room floor. That is no, no, no. No, 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 no.